people are lining up outside stores that are making it worth the trip to get in. And that is a media channel. We just simply are not currently measuring the value of that channel today in retail. There is often a sentiment among old school retail people that the new era doesn't care about product as much. It's all about the marketing. It's not as much about the integrity of the product. I don't think it's the end of product. It's maybe the beginning of the era of truth in marketing, and we just have to take a totally different uh, view of it. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to Inside Fashion. This week, we're going deep, deep, deep inside the retail industry. Regular readers of BOF will know the name Doug Stevens, AKA the retail prophet. Well, this week on Inside Fashion, Doug sits down with Lauren Sherman to talk a little bit about what he considers the most important metric in retail. In a world where consumption is increasingly moving online, how should the performance of physical stores be measured? Doug recently wrote a very popular column on BOF on the most important metric in retail, so we thought it was worth going even deeper. Here's Doug Stevens with Lauren Sherman, Inside Fashion. I'm so excited to chat with you, Doug, about this. And and I think to start, can we just, can you kind of just lay out what the most important metric in retail is and, and why? Sure. Uh, and and uh, Lauren, it's a real pleasure to be with you too. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so let's, let's just back up a little bit. Let's pan out. So I, I think that for the better part of at least a decade, the retail industry has agreed that the metrics, the industrial age metrics that we've been using to measure the productivity of, of physical retail um, are, are, are not really telling an accurate story of productivity. I, I think that goes without saying. Um, I mean, most of the retail that we see around us today is the product of a pre-internet world. So how could we possibly expect that pre-internet metrics are going to accurately reflect uh, productivity in a post-internet world? With that in mind, there, there have been some brands out there sort of poking around trying to figure out, okay, well, what is the new the new model for measuring productivity. So we've looked at things like, okay, what about uh, not just looking at sales on a four wall basis, but what if we now also look at online sales from the catchment area around a store? Can we reasonably assume that there's a, a, a halo effect, if you will, that's what the NRF is calling it, the National Retail Federation. Is there a halo effect? Can we attribute uh, some productivity online to the presence of a physical store, and they have found that, yes, that's the case. Anywhere from, say, 27 to 35% lift in online sales because you have a decent physical store in the market. So attribution gets us a little closer to telling the whole story, but my feeling is it doesn't really tell the, the entire story. Um, and, and I believe that the more accurate metric and something that we can definitely measure and we must take into consideration is the store's media value. And what I mean by media value is this. If we accept the idea that media has, as a, as a construct, as an idea, has always been effective wherever people gather in numbers. So if we go back a thousand years, guess what? It was physical stores, it was physical space, the market bazaar, the agora, the placa, whatever you wanna call it. That's where people got their news, their information, and that's where they did commerce. Then it was the printing press that became a more efficient means of broadcast and that was somewhat displaced by radio, radio by television, and ultimately television by 
digital. Digital is the new campfire that we all gather around. Uh, however, that's becoming a very, very difficult place to reach consumers in an effective way. We're seeing the cost of advertising online going up exponentially, while at the same time we're seeing clicks online only going up very, very incrementally. So we're at a point of diminishing returns in terms of online spending to reach consumers for the purposes of customer acquisition. However, uh, with that said, when we look around at where are people once again gathering, I would argue that it's physical stores. I mean, whatever city I go to, whether it's LA, New York, Tokyo, London, you know, you name it, all you really need to do is put on your running shoes, get into the streets and look for lineups and you'll find them. You know, people are lining up outside stores that are making it worth the trip to get in. And that is a media channel. You know, wherever you have people in numbers that are open and receptive to messaging, that's a viable and productive media channel. We just simply are not currently measuring the value of that channel today in retail. It, it's funny. I always think about the lines. We are based in Soho in New York. And so there are lines at Glossier. There are lines at Off-White. There are lines at, of course, Supreme. And it reminds me of when I was in my early twenties and in, in college and, or, you know, late, late teens and going to tower records. I think it was on Monday night because the Tuesday was when all the records dropped and people would just stand in line for like the next Dave Matthews record or, or what have you. And it feels very similar. It's very community based. The question I have for you is, you know, Glossier is a good example of once you get into the store, there is also things to look at there at their L.A. store. They have this kind of cave that you can take a photo. A lot of these stores have Instagrammable visuals, that sort of thing. But what what are some of the different forms of media once you get there, once you're talking with with your peers that a store can create? to get people engaged and have them want to line up again? Is it, is it just product? Is it about the things around the product? I think it's everything. Everything matters. Um, and, and it's really looking, once you start to look at a, a, a retail store through the lens of media, once you start saying, okay, what if, what if retail is no longer simply a distribution mechanism for product, but what if it's actually a customer acquisition strategy? What if we make the assumption that the people that are coming into the store are not just simply being kind of pushed down the funnel the way they were 40 years ago? You know, I saw an ad on TV and I ran to the store, but what if this is their first introduction to the brand? What if they've never experienced us before? And if we were to treat that 10, 20, 30 minute engagement as though it's a living, breathing advertisement for the brand, how would that change our perspective on how we plan stores, where we locate them, the people that we hire to work in those stores? Would we really fill every single inch of that store with product or would we build more experiences in the store that really Tell, tell a more fulsome story about who we are as a brand and as a culture and as a community. And I think that that is, uh, interestingly enough, and you pointed to Glossier and Supreme, interestingly, it really is the digitally native brands that are coming offline and opening physical space that seem to sort of intuitively get that. They recognize that if it it was just about distribution of product, they can do that pretty efficiently and effectively online. Uh, And Amazon and Alibaba prove that every day. 
But if we want to use physical space as a means of galvanizing a relationship, a deep emotionally grounded relationship with consumers, and I would argue physical space is the best place to do it, but it requires a totally different lens on how we create experiences in the physical space. In terms of starting out, if you're opening your first store, you're looking to to kind of shift the way you use your stores, is the most important thing looking for something with a particular sort of foot traffic? Or is it, what what is the thing that gets people to go in if they haven't been prompted in another way? Uh, it's a, f- a fantastic question. And I'm actually working with brands right now that are asking that exact question. Um, one client that we're working with is developing a brand new concept, completely new sort of approach to how they take their brand and their products and their message to market. And so in, in one of the meetings that we had recently, that was one of the questions. Is this like, is this something that belongs on Fifth Avenue or the, you know, the Champs-Élysées? Or could we afford to be a little bit uh, a little bit more creative with, with where we put the store. And I guess my, my opinion is this, and, and, and look, it's not just my opinion. I think we've all had this experience in some way, shape, or form. We've all been told about something that is, uh, that, that is not uh, on the beaten path, that, that is, is certainly something we have to go out and find. But we've all been given sort of that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like you've got to go check this out. It's awesome. And we've sought these things out not because we saw an ad or, or because the, the brand reached out to us, but because a friend or uh, a coworker or a relative or whomever said, this is awesome. You have got to check this out. So I would argue that rather than brands sort of starting with the premise of, okay, where should we be located? The question is, well, what the hell are you going to do? What is it that you intend to build and how amazing and jaw-dropping do you actually believe that's going to be? Because I would argue if it's really that amazing, you, you could build it in the sewer system of a city and people would, they'd seek it out. They'd be lifting manhole covers to get in. So it's, it's really about what is it that we're setting out to do? Uh, how different and remarkable is it actually going to be? And uh, once we understand that, then the question is, do we really have to be paying $300 a square foot on 6th Avenue or could we be somewhere, uh, you know, in an empty airplane hangar somewhere with this concept? A lot of this sounds to me like storytelling. It, and storytelling comes in so many different forms now. It, when you are at, you know, ground base level with these brands, how do you get them to think that way? How, what what are kind of exercises they can do to help figure out how they want to tell their story, whether that's through visuals, whether that's through events or what have you? Because the thing that I find quite a bit is in-store experience is often they see, okay, we are a female brand. There are all these other female brands having panel discussions about what it's like to be, you know, a working mom or what have you. And it, it doesn't work because it, they're just doing it because that's what everyone else is doing. And how do, how do brands kind of brainstorm and conceptualize their own stories so that it feels really authentic and also exciting to the consumer? It's interesting, you know, before we go out to work with a brand, um, and we, we do uh, what we call rapid innovation labs, where, where we take a brand basically from a sort of a 
uh, you know, grappling with the, uh, the idea uh, that we're talking about, you know, how do we properly convey our, our story in the market, our, our, our essence, our brand essence, how do, we, how do we tell that story, all the way up to understanding what that story actually is and, and the various elements of it. But one of the things we start with is, is a survey of the executives within the brand itself, where we ask fundamental questions around the positioning of the brand um, and, and the, the basic you know, kind of building block elements of what their unique story and their value proposition is. And what we find very often is that uh, in, in many cases, the executives of these organizations are completely disconnected in terms of their own perceptions of what the brand is all about and what that essential story is. So for us, that's really the starting point. Can we all at least get on the same page with who this brand is? What is the positioning? Is the positioning all about convenience and price and and, uh, ease of shopping? Or is that proposition more about emotional value and service and experience? You know, what, what is that fundamental positioning? And then once we agree on that, the question is, okay, what's the story? What's the story that nests into that positioning in a congruent way, right? What is the story that we're going out and telling? And then finally, once we all agree on the positioning and the story, the question becomes, okay, how does that actually manifest itself now in a, uh, in, in a way at retail that is not just aesthetic, but it's actually mechanical, right? That it, that it actually transforms the way I go about buying something within the retail environment. And it becomes, you know, we talk about storytelling a lot. We prefer to use the term story doing. So what is the consumer actually doing in the space that brings them into the story in an intimate and, and, uh, and human way? I'm trying to think of, of some good examples of brands, big and small, that do this. I think from, from my perspective, Target is great at the in-store experience. It makes you feel something, and that's on a really, really mass scale. But then if you look at something like Story in New York, which is a kind of um, pop, it's not a pop-up store, it's a permanent store, but it turns over its concept every every six weeks. and as you know, Rachel Sheckman, who's, who is the founder and is now at, at Macy's heading up customer experience there, it, it does create a feeling and an idea beyond the, the products in the store. I, I guess a question for you is, it's great to say, well, I have this feeling when I go into the store. I love going in there because I find new designers and the shop people are really nice and it's cool and interesting or what have you. But how do you measure that versus, you know, what we're taught in business journalism in terms of how to read a retail report is to look at comps, to look at year over year sales at the stores that have been open because you can open a million stores and increase your sales. But if you're, stores that have been open for a while, those sales aren't increasing. That's, you know, that's an indicator that the brand is not doing well. Sure. What, I, what do you think about comps and, and how do you measure that now? And how do you measure this, this media engagement? Yeah. I, you know, um, so in the article, I think I used the term like, you know, looking at, looking at a brand's comp store growth and determining sort of their long-term health by looking at a single quarter is sort of like asking a patient, you know, what'd you have for breakfast? 
and then basing your whole diagnosis on that, right? Oh, healthy breakfast. Oh, you're fine. You know, no, it's, it, we can't look at retail that way anymore at all. And, and I'm not suggesting that we throw away comp growth. I think comp growth is always going to be a little bit of a compass heading at least. And look, if, if we're shrinking dramatically, if we're just shrinking uh, so dramatically uh, compared to the rest of the organization or the industry or the chain, then that's a, a cause for concern. So I'm not suggesting that comp growth goes away, but what we should be looking at when we're evaluating the health and productivity of retail stores in today's environment, my belief is this, we should take into consideration sales within the four walls of the store. Yes. Okay. So how much is the store actually selling uh, in, in terms of turning, turning over physical inventory? Great. Now let's also, yes, let's look at what we think we can reasonably attribute to this store in terms of online sales in the catchment area. So what is a reasonable figure that we could say this store is probably driving uh, if the NRF information from their research is, is correct. But here's the most important thing. I believe then we have to introduce a new set of, of metrics and it goes something like this. If we accept the fact that in order for me to, to generate a consumer impression, I need to go and buy that somewhere, right? I need to go and I need to buy some advertising that puts me in proximity with that consumer and, and gives me the ability to deliver an impression to that consumer. Mark, and marketing has been perfectly satisfied with this expression impression for, for decades. So I go out on the open market, I buy a Facebook ad, 30 second video ad on Facebook and, and I pay uh, X numbers of dollars per impression. What I'm suggesting is that every consumer that comes into a store, into a physical store, should also be treated the same way. So we have, let's say, we have a million consumers a year that go through our physical stores in, in this particular chain and every one of those impressions is worth something. What we have to do as a retail organization is we have to determine, well, what is the value of something? What, what is that value, right? And so if a, if a Facebook ad costs us 80 cents and we agree internally as an executive group that, well, a physical impression in store that's 10, 15, 20 minutes long is certainly worth more than 80 cents, but what is it? Well, we have to take a bit of an educated guess. But we also have to arrive at a figure that at least internally as a company, we can accept as being realistic. So let, let's say it's um, $4 is what we determine. So now we say, okay, well, we had a million customers last year. Every single one of those impressions we've agreed internally is worth $4 to the brand. So that's $4 million that we've got there. That's value that has to be attributed to something right? It can't just sort of sit in the ether and not be accounted for. So my belief is stores should get credit for that value, the value of that media being created. But here's the only caveat. We know that not every impression is positive, right? Some, some brands can have, see a million customers a year and piss every one of them off, right? So we also have to take into consideration sentiment. So if we say there were a million consumers a year, every impression is worth $4 if it's positive. If it's positive, we can attribute that value in a positive way. But if it's negative, if a store or a chain of stores has a negative NPS score, then it's reasonable to assume that every customer interaction is actually draining equity and value from the brand. And we have to take that into account as well. So long-winded way, Lauren, of saying if you have two stores, store A sells $5 million a year in product, 
but it also generates $2 million a year in positive sentiment and positive impressions for the brand, then we have $7 million in value. Might have another store that's doing $10 million in sales, but it's actually delivering $4 million in negative media impressions for the brand. And we've all been in flagship stores that aren't that great that do exactly that. So the point is, if all I was looking at was comp store growth in terms of these two stores, and I had to close one of them, I'd probably close the wrong store, unless I was taking into account the media value that each of these respective stores is generating, and it paints a totally different picture. How do you suggest stores measure this? You mentioned MPS, so net promoter score. Do you think that's the, the easiest way to get a sense at the end when, when someone's leaving the store? Should there be, I know when you're at the airport, you can press that button. My experience was good, bad, what have you. How do you think people should be measuring this? You know, sometimes, yeah, the, the, the best answers are the ones that are out in plain sight. And so I think it's exactly that. You have to find a very, very easy way for consumers to feed back to you what the quality of that experience was. There are companies now that are delivering that same capability, sort of the smiley face, frowny face thing, right at POS. So if you do make a transaction, if you are buying something, you can also feed back, you know, what, what, was this an experience you'd recommend to friends or family? Yes or no. In cases where they're not buying anything, yeah, if there's an intercept mechanism, whether it's technology that you're putting at the door, whether it's uh, some form of mobile communication that you're following up with afterwards, you just want to very generally get a sense, are we creating more positive impressions than we are negative? You know, what does that balance look like? Um, so when you put it all together, you, you, you sort of say, okay, look, we have the ability to measure traffic. That's, that goes without saying. There are companies like Retail Next or Euclid or you know, all these various companies out there now that are measuring traffic in a very, very accurate way. We can also measure things like hang time. Is the amount of time people are spending in our stores increasing or decreasing, right? Because that's a pretty good sign that you know, the experience is either entreating people to stay or, or pushing them out the door. But then also sort of getting at this multiple, what is, the, what is this dollar figure per impression that we can use internally? And I just want to make it clear too, I'm not talking about something that shows up in your quarterly report and freaks out Wall Street, right, with a new metric. But I'm saying as an internal guide for now, Wall Street is far, far, I think, from becoming enlightened on, on the subject of, of metrics, and they're still pretty much stuck in the dark ages. But for retail companies, I think it's essential to get at yeah, what's the NPS and are we, are we getting that in a really efficient, effective way? Do we have a reasonable calculation for the cost of an impression or the value of an impression? And are we capturing foot traffic in an, in an uh, equally accurate way? If we're doing all three of those things and you've got a media value that you have to take into consideration. In terms of concrete examples of what media can look like at retail, could you give some generic scenarios of, of the kinds of things that brands and retailers can develop to engage the consumer more at, you know, at the physical store level? Sure. So, I mean, this is being done and it's being done in a, in a, a variety of different ways right now. What we have are, are for the most part, um, uh, I'm going to say new era companies for the most part, are sort of exploring this notion of how, how do we better tell our story offline? Um, Sonos, wireless speakers, 
Good example, right? When they opened their store in Soho, and this is going back a couple of years, but when they opened in Soho, they clearly said, look, we, we don't just want a store where people can avail, where, where we are availing distribution of our speakers. Best Buy does that and they do it just fine, right? Speakers on a shelf, great. But they went in and they said, what we want to do is we want people to understand the technical differences between our speakers and, and anything else that they've ever heard before. So this has to be a listening experience, not just a come in, grab a box off a shelf and leave experience. So they created 150 square foot listening pods in the store that are basically decorated like a really cool friend's apartment that you can just go and hang out in and have a perfectly acoustically tuned experience. And then throughout the store, various elements sort of convey the Sonos story and why they're unique and sort of this engineering-based company uh, that, that provides great in-home entertainment. That story is being told. So there's one example. But you could also look at a legacy brand like Nike that says, we're going to create a thing called the House of Innovation in New York City that is essentially inviting a consumer into an experience that tells a story about Nike's bent on innovation and, and their position as a pioneer in the category and involves the consumer in a physical, kinetic way in that innovation in creating their own running shoe. That's a very, very different thing than looking at a footlocker and saying, well, the experience is people wear shirts like referees. Okay, great. It's a, that's clearly just a distribution mechanism. But what Nike is doing is they're taking back more responsibility for telling their story, and they're telling it in ways that no mass merchant retailer could ever tell that story, and they're doing it in a really beautiful way. What's really interesting to me about Nike as a consumer is the VIP element, that they really make every single consumer feel like a VIP. I ran, I think a 13 K in Toronto on, on Doug is, is based in Toronto on, on an Island out there. Uh, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And I didn't go through press. I, I went as a consumer and I felt so special and so taken care of at the end, instead of getting a big giant, um, whatever they're called, the a, a charm, you, you've got a nice little Tiffany chain that that had engraved Nike engraved in it. It was really beautiful and I think it was a hundred bucks to sign up or what have you. But I am curious to know what you think about how can how can brands at every level and you know Nike has a lot of money to do these sorts of things, how can they make the customer feel special and an individual, you know, every time they come into the store? Yeah, brilliant question. I mean, the question, you know, I think I think intellectually, you get to a certain point where and we see this with with the brands that we work with where, you know, intellectually, I get it. Okay, so I have to fundamentally look through a different lens as I'm sort of creating the store experience. But then the question becomes, so how do I go about doing that? Right? What's the next step? From our perspective, there are really two things. First of all, uh, in many cases, brands really do not have an intimate understanding of their own consumer journey in their category. And customer journey, customer experience is a term that sort of gets overused, uh, I think, today um, to the point where we sort of lose track of what the definition is. But again, my belief is that customer experience is not an aesthetic principle. It's not about what I see when I walk into the store. I'm not suggesting that the, the look of your store isn't important, but it's, it's more than that. 
It's really digging into the mechanics of the experience. So the first step is to really uh, break that customer journey down into its very, very smallest moments and micro moments. And I mean like almost microscopic. So when the, when the customer just you know, breaches the threshold of the store, that could be looked at as one moment. But if we really look at it in a more granular way, it's a moment that is comprised of about a dozen other little micro moments, right? Just coming in the door. As a brand, we need to understand not necessarily um, simply what is happening in those moments now, but we have to determine what do we want to engineer to happen in every one of those micro moments. And once we start designing for micro moments, then we start becoming very specific and deliberate about the experience that we're trying to create. Then we go into what we call the five elements of remarkable experience. From our research, there are basically five things that remarkable brands do consistently that most other brands don't. Uh, and they go like this. Uh, they offer surprise. So there's usually some element of the experience where we go, whoa, never seen that before. That's really cool. Uh, there's some element of surprise. There's uh, certainly elements of uniqueness. So where brands sort of say, okay, well, how do most people sell in our category? Okay, well, we're going to do it totally differently. We are going to engineer an experience like Casper did in the bedding market, where the consumer has a totally different way of buying our product, feels different, looks different, acts different. The next element is personalization, to your point. And looking at that entire end-to-end -end customer journey, brands need to be very specific about, okay, now where are the moments where we can reassure the customer that this is just about them? That it's all you know, basically aimed at their needs, their preferences, um, and, and begin to shape the personalized uh, elements of that experience. Ultimately then, uh, the next piece is the engagement piece. How can we engage the consumer throughout the experience uh, both before they get in the store and after they leave the store in an emotional, in, an, in a cognitive, and in a physical way? How can we engage their minds, their hearts, and their bodies? And then the last question is, how can we do all of those other four things in a repeatable way so that we're, we're optimizing that experience every single day? Um, the whole acronym basically just spells SUPER, S-U-P-E-R. Uh, surprise, uniqueness, personalization, engagement, and then repeatability. And if you can begin to construct an experience that way, it's amazing. Like we've taken brands from that sort of uh, area where everyone is sort of uh, butting heads over what the brand is all about, all the way through to the point where they start to see this incredibly elegant and beautiful experience take shape. It's a, a really great way to sort of sum it up and an, an easy thing for someone to put on their wall and think about in brainstorming sessions. I, another question I have is about product itself. And I do think, and I talk to kind of old school retail people versus new retail people. There's often a sentiment among old school retail people that the new era doesn't care about product as much. It's all about the marketing. It's not as much about the, the integrity of the product. I don't personally think that's true. I only see brands doing well that have a really great product. But what, what role does product play in this entire thing? And how do you integrate that into the media plan? Yes. <laughs> it's funny because... Um, 
you know, I, I hear that too. I'll, I'll sort of hear, you know, executives talking about this idea that it's the end of product. You know, nobody cares about product anymore. I look at it a totally different way. I think it's the, just the end of bullshit. And, and we have to accept the fact that there was like 50 or 60, maybe longer years in marketing where you could bullshit consumers. You know, you could say all kinds of things about your product to get them to believe that it was materially different than anything else in the market. And what we've just hit a point now where consumers are just so sophisticated, have so much information at their fingertips that you just simply can't bullshit anymore. You have to truly create something that is genuinely, objectively remarkable, that is, that is outstanding, if that's going to be your value proposition, if it's all about product. Um, having said that, I think that what we, what we have now recognized is that uh, because of that level of sophistication and access that consumers have, product is a very difficult place to hang your hat, right? Um, because, because yeah, A, consumers are informed, and B, because your product can now be reverse engineered in a month you know, uh, by a factory in China. The second element is, is really around service. You know, okay, so can service be a differentiator? Well, that's even becoming more difficult now as consumers, again, have more access to information and can really figure things out themselves. So what's the only remaining differentiator? It's kind of the alchemy of all of it that we now sort of entitle under uh, experience. But, but it, you know, experience is a, is a really difficult thing to reverse engineer. And you only have to look at Apple and ask yourself, like, how long did Microsoft try to emulate Apple stores before they sort of recognized that they just couldn't? You know, it was this unique kind of chemistry of their culture, their products, um, you know, sort of the, the folklore that the brand was built on and their approach to retail that, that even Microsoft could not knock it off. You know, they, they had to accept the fact that they just couldn't mount an Apple type of experience. I don't think it's the end of product. I just, I think it's the, it's maybe the beginning of the era of truth in marketing. And, um, and we just have to take a totally different uh, view of it. That's a very positive way to think about it. Sounds like they're be a lot of exciting things happening in retail in the last next few years. Um, one thing, and this is a bit separate from from what we've been discussing today, but last couple of weeks, this looming recession thing has really started to ramp up. The yield curve is a frowny face. Retail sales have been, bleh. and I've been thinking about it quite a bit because I covered the last recession and thinking about what happened before before that all hit. And I mean, the world is so different right now. And, and especially in terms of luxury retail, I think the challenge has come in the last three to five years when the economy has been doing well. So I'm just curious to know from your perspective, are your clients asking about the recession? How can brands prepare for it or, or even if they can't prepare for it, how should they be thinking about it right now? If, if it's going to happen, I mean, it will happen. It could happen a year from now. It could happen five years from now, but there will be one. So I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We're we're well overdue uh, in the cycle. Um, you know, recessions typically happen every seven to ten years, and so we we are we're in the trough right now. We should be anyway. 
Uh, and and you're you're quite right. We're sort of forestalling that with um, with tax cuts and and various other mechanisms. We're keeping interest rates perhaps artificially low right now, just trying to 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 stimulate the economy. The more we do that, the more we forestall the inevitable. The more uh, the more terrible potentially the inevitable becomes. Right, um, the backlash of all of that could be quite dramatic. Um, I would, and, and I also agree that, you know, people point to consumer sentiment now is very high. Consumers feel really good. Well, you know, consumers felt really good in 2006 as well. In 2007, it was like everyone was buying as much as they could before the music stopped, you know, and then, then we know what happened. So I would say this, if, if you're a retail brand out there um, or a retail entrepreneur and you're sort of still kind of mopping your brow from the last recession, I would say now is the time where you really need to figure yourself out. You really need to figure your business out and you need to start building a business that is much more resilient and uh, ready for the challenge of a next recession because Lauren, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's got to happen at some point. Uh, you know, we've, we've pinned our hopes on China for too long. China's not going to be the world's consumer workhorse anymore. Uh, the U.S. looks like it's potentially on the brink of a recession. Europe's production and, and uh, manufacturing levels are, are decreasing. So I think that the, the wise money will be betting on a recession, I would say, within the next, um, yeah, within the next year. I think it's reasonable to assume it's going to happen. So get, get yourself ready. Get your super plan ready. That's right, yeah. Doug, thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you and, and thanks to the audience. Thank you, Laura. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. For a limited time only, we're offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF professional membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package and enter the special code podcast 2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did, and don't forget to share it with your friends.